2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. So the uh, report from the ODNI is out that uh, Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. Uh, It was planned, executed, and covered up by MBS. What I'm wondering, I just tweeted this out, is um, uh, where is Jared Kushner in this? Jared Kushner had become uh, Bonesaw's best buddy, uh, constant trips over to the Middle East, and uh, in fact, you know, we saw a confidential document or some sort of leaked communication from Kushner. This was like a year or so ago, saying that he helped the crown prince weather the storm, or words to that effect. I see no reference to Kushner in this report, though. And I'm, you know, inquiring minds want to know, right? I'm curious. What happened? Shouldn't we know? Anyhow. Dr. Trita Parsi is with us, he's the Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, been on the program many times over the years, an extraordinarily well-informed observer of the, uh, broadly, the situation in the Middle East and with regard to Iran in particular. The website is quincyinst.org and you can tweet to Dr. Parsi at tparsi, P-A-R-S-I. Dr. Parsi, welcome back. I'm I'm wondering if you could first just give us a, a short shorthand kind of background on the situation with Iran, from the deal that President Obama participated in, uh, you know, along with, uh, I believe it was five other nations, in putting together to uh, Trump's blowing it up to where we're at right now. And then we can go forward with what's happening with Biden and this diplomacy. But just for those people who may not have been paying attention.
3: Sure. So for years, there's been tensions over Iran's nuclear program, and there was a major breakthrough in 2012-2013 that laid the way for multilateral negotiations between the United States, Germany, France, the UK, Russia, China, and Iran. And 2015, they reached a landmark agreement that blocked all of Iran's pathways to a nuclear weapon, and at the same time, lifted sanctions on Iran, rehabilitated the country politically. It was hailed by all countries, with the exception of three, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the UAE, three countries that incidentally have been pushing the United States to go to war with Iran. Trump comes in, he tears the agreement apart, walks out of it, reimposes sanctions on Iran, imposes further sanctions on Iran. After about a year, the Iranians start to reduce some of their obligations and as a result restarted elements of the program that they had kept dormant as a result of the deal. Biden comes in, he had promised that he would quickly get back into the agreement. It's part of the Democratic Party platform that there should be quick rejoining of the nuclear agreement. We're six weeks into it. We have still not seen any clear gesture by the Biden administration to get back into the agreement. Instead, we're stuck on a rather childish fight as to who needs to take the first step, which is wasting very valuable time and is likely gonna make the political cost and difficulty to get this deal up and running again, all the more difficult.
2: Give us the details on that, you know, who, who takes the first step dispute.
3: Well, so the Biden administration started messaging that they would get back into the deal if the Iranians reverse some of the steps that they have taken. The Iranians never left the deal. They've reversed, uh, reduced some of their obligations. And Biden wants Iran to uh, reverse all of those steps, be in complete compliance with the agreement before he takes any step at all. You're
2: talking their further enrichment of uranium principally?
3: enrichment of uranium shipping out of that uranium specific sites that have been closed uh, enrichment to higher levels all kinds of different things that are very important that the iranians have made very clear that they will reverse all of it assuming that the u.s goes back into the deal and the iranians are very worried it seems like because if they allow the united states to come back into the deal without lifting the sanctions that are actually violating the deal and essentially continues to pursue Trump's maximum pressure strategy, then their fear is that if the talks then end up hitting a snag and not succeed and break down, they will be blamed for it, even though Biden actually never changed the policy of Trump. He continued to do exactly what Trump was doing more or less while getting the credit um, for simply wanting to talk which Trump wanted to as well, but then the Iranians will get the full blame for it. So they've been resisting. Biden doesn't want to take the first step because he's afraid of looking weak and that Saudi Arabia and Israel and the UAE and Republicans will attack him. But at the same time, Biden did promise leadership and leadership means taking the first step by definition. So there's an expectation that he would lead and take the first step now. And these issues, by the way, can be resolved easily behind the scenes. The problem is that once you make them public, which unfortunately the administration contributed to doing, then they become really tricky to resolve, because then it's all about saving political face.
2: Right, which takes us back to domestic politics. I believe Iran has a presidential election coming up this year, and certainly America is in a continuous cycle of political turmoil. To what extent are domestic
3: politics driving these decisions on both sides? Well, domestic politics is tremendously important, unfortunately, on both sides. The Iranians are in a tight situation. I mean, the Rouhani government only has a couple of effective months left. The, the elections are in June. By uh, last two weeks of March, the Iranians are in an election season. As a result, cannot negotiate effectively. On this side, I think, unfortunately, the Biden administration seems to think that there is a way for them to strike a deal with Iran, to actually get back into the JCPA without paying a domestic political cost, without angering the Saudis and the Israelis and the UAE. And I simply don't think that's possible at all. I mean, Obama proved that it's not possible to do that. If you want this deal, you have to be ready to pay pay a political price for it. If you're not willing to pay the political price, then you shouldn't even pretend that you're interested in diplomacy.
2: We're talking about the Saudis, Israel, and the UAE. Biden has distanced himself from Netanyahu, who is, you know, facing crises of his own as he's being prosecuted for corruption and other crimes. The Saudis, we just came out and pointed out that, you know, Mr. Bonesaw murdered ordered the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And the UAE has, well, God only knows. I mean, certainly they played a big role with Jared Kushner's billion dollars. Why are we so concerned about those three countries in terms
3: of pacifying them with regard to Iran? I think it has a lot to do with how they can have an impact on domestic politics. But I I want to say I I absolutely agree with the premise of your question. It's a real question mark. Why are we willing to to put their concerns and their interests and their preferences above the U.S.'s security interests? As Bill Clinton said after his first meeting with Netanyahu in 1996. Who's the freaking superpower in this equation, in this relationship? That seems to be a need of reminding here because the Biden administration itself has said that this is a security imperative. We need to make sure that the Iranians don't have a, a pathway to a bomb. We need to avoid a war. And incidentally, perhaps even more importantly, The idea of striking this deal in order to avoid a war and avoid a weapon in Iran is absolutely imperative in order for the United States to be able to slowly but surely extract itself from the Middle East militarily, which is exactly what the American public wants. They don't want to have 58,000 troops in these endless wars in the Middle East. But without this agreement with Iran, it's a very difficult task to be able to uh, achieve that. It's going to be difficult even with it. But it's necessary to have it, because it's the one issue that actually can drag the United States back into a land war in the Middle East. What can Americans do to encourage this process? I think they can call their members of Congress and ask them to put pressure on the administration to live up to its promise to get back into the deal without causing complications.
2: Sounds like a plan.
3: Dr. Trita Parsi, it's always great talking
2: with you, sir. Thank you so much for Thank dropping you so by today. Having me. Thank you. Quincyinst.org is the website. You can tweet Dr. Parsi at T-P-A-R-S-I, T-Parsi, Dr. Trita Parsi. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today?
4: Hello, Tom. I think Joe Biden's handling of Iran so far has been a complete disaster. In fact, I see pretty much no difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration. On things like Iran, Venezuela, China, Russia. In fact, the same foreign policy seems to just be continuing from one administration to another. Anthony Blinken is a disaster. He's just as hawkish as uh, Mike Pompeo. You know, this whole Jared. Sure, you know, nobody
2: like, is as hawkish as Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo wants to be president, and he thought you know, bombing his way to something might get him there.
4: Well. That, okay, so maybe not as hawkish, but he's definitely on the same path as Mike Pompeo in terms of how much more are we going to take of this, you know, Western hubris that America can tell Iran, you know, like we can sanction it, we can tell them they can't have nuclear weapons, even though America and Israel have nuclear weapons and America has actually used nuclear weapons not just in warfare but also on civilian populations. Well you have the entire
2: the entire planet. I mean we've had several treaties, the UN is involved in this, we've the entire planet has been trying to dial back on nuclear weapons. I think that the larger issue is why are we taking the side of Saudi Arabia, Israel and the UAE against Iran when what may be in America's interest would be to rejoin the european countries russia and china and putting back together this deal with iran and abandoning as dr parsi said some of the uh, just you know purely punitive actions particularly the sanctions that have been taken against iran that are not necessarily connected to that deal
4: i already have the answer because because imperialist interests of those countries and our own imperious interests are not actually aligned with the interest of the American people. There was a huge lobbying effort from Iranians in exile in America. Look up the January 6th riots, and you'll see a whole bunch of Shah flags from these um, comprador Iranians in America. And you'll realize that a lot of our foreign policy is being run by the special interest groups, also, as Obama called it, the blob, and nothing's going to change. Yeah, it's nothing's sort of gonna... like
2: the Cubans, some of the Cubans in the United States who had property expropriated by uh, Castro, what, 70 years ago. They still think they can get it back, and they're still working toward that. There are people who had property expropriated by, or appropriated, I guess is the proper word, by the Iranian government. They want it back. I get it. Jared, I gotta run, but thank you. Thanks for the conversation. It's the Tom Hartman program. Talk media for the sane about this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Shatter the Nations ISIS and the War for the Caliphate by Mike Gillio. This is from the prologue. Dayline, Mosul, Iraq, February 2017. Abdul Wahab swore it was a true story. His eyes were reflected in the rearview mirror as he sped his pickup through battle-beaten country. To the left, the setting sun cast a Polaroid haze across brown fields and squat stone farmhouses. To the right was a ridge of mountains. Ahead was a flat road and a darkening sky. There was a soldier, a big soldier named Will. That's how Abdul Wahab put it he pronounced the name Wool. Wool, Wool, he said it a couple more times like he hadn't said it in a while. He slowed the truck to roll through the final checkpoint manned by the Kurdish militia whose green and red flags snapped in a bitter wind. A soldier in a scarf manned a machine gun on the barricade that marked the boundary. From there, the road led 60 miles through territory controlled by the Iraqi military to the edge of Mosul and the last bastions of the ISIS caliphate. Will was one of the American special forces sent to Iraq more than a decade earlier to kill insurgents. The nights of the Iraq war had been filled with U.S. commando raids, and the Americans had created Abdul Wahab's elite battalion to do the raids with them, an Iraqi version of the Delta Force, or SEAL Team 6. The battalion had an English name, the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, and was known by its initials ICTF, which the men sewed onto their uniforms and painted on their Humvees. The Iraqis admired their American mentors. They picked up the Special Forces ethos, wore baseball caps and sunglasses, used words like the F word and bro and dude. But Will was different, Abdul Wahab said. He would lose control. Abdul Wahab kept his foot on the gas pedal as he raced through a Christian town that seemed to be empty. ISIS had destroyed some of the houses and the ones still standing were dark. Not a soul was visible except a trio of Iraqi soldiers who sat on a leather couch on the roadside. The photographer, Warzar Jaff was in the passenger seat. I was in the back. Abdul Wahab's M-16 was by my feet. An ICTF veteran in his 40s who had given up fighting, Abdul Wahab had been ferrying Jaff and me to and from Mosul for months. He was stocky and gruff, an expert at passing through the myriad checkpoints that led to the front lines, always knowing what to say or whom to call or when to gift his sunglasses to an admiring militiaman. He was an ideal wheelman for navigating the strange tapestry of the alliance, while all its varied forces fly in their banners around the city like armies in a medieval siege. His commanders used him for special transport of weapons and supplies, and officers who wanted to escape for a night to the hotels of Erbil, the Kurdish capital and nearest outpost of modernity, a place where they could find a decent dinner and booze, or visit a mall or swim in a pool and grasp at a moment of normalcy on the edge of the world's most brutal war zone. As grumpy as Sean, he was forever making the 45-mile journey between the two valley cities, and when Jaff and I had no other way to get to the war, we went with him. A folk song about an old battle was playing on the radio. You made your tribe proud of you. I can hear them scream. Abdul Wahab was still talking about Will. First, he began shooting animals on patrol. Then on a raid one night he shot an old man as he opened his front door abdul wahab had seen it happen the man's daughter was screaming beating her chest in grief and will said something like i just gave him an injection. he's sleeping and threw a mattress onto the old man he killed a teenager in front of his mother jamming his gun into the boy's mouth abdul wahab said he saw the boy's mangled head he killed one man as iraqi medics were treating him he killed another while he lay in bed beside his wife I asked what had happened to Will. Abdul Wahab said he didn't know. Will was transferred one day, and that was the last he'd seen of him, but he reckoned that a man like him must have met his judgment eventually. What he was telling me I knew was a ghost story. It reminded me of old reports of torture and orange jumpsuits and dead civilians and that what America asked of its soldiers could unhinge them. The war that defined my parents' generation in Vietnam had the draft and civil unrest with it. By the time the Iraq War started, when I was 18, America had a volunteer army so people like me could carry on without worrying that our number would be called. The country still found itself with a guilty conscience, though, and in this war with ISIS, the only U.S. soldiers on the front lines were the secret kind, small groups of commandos whose every mission was classified, while U.S. pilots and drone operators dropped bombs. It was left to local soldiers, like the men of Abdul Wahab's battalion, to do the bulk of the fighting. And as far as most Americans and their politicians were concerned, the war was out of sight and out of mind. In a way, it made sense. Fewer Americans lost their lives or their minds or committed war crimes. There were fewer stories like wills. Yet, in this new kind of U.S. war that culminated in Mosul, the deadliest urban battle in which America had engaged in at least half a century, the toll was still being paid by the local soldiers who were U.S. allies and by the civilians who were dying by the thousands in the crossfire. And I worried about the psyche of a country that still considered itself at war, but was more disengaged than ever from it, with no sense of shared sacrifice or even collective responsibility. On the one hand, America seemed obsessed with ISIS, roiling with every terror attack. While on the other, they made little effort to understand the enemy or the local soldiers doing most of the killing and dying to stop it. The book Shatter the Nations. Nilafar in Santa Monica. Hey, Nilafar, what's up?
5: I wanted to point out a few issues about the um, Iranian nuclear program.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: The government, uh, the Iranian government has always claimed that their project is peaceful and they don't have any plans for weaponizing it. And uh, Mike Pompeo, as the head of CIA... Are you Iran sure they're was,
2: saying that? Because they are enriching yes, they uranium right now beyond what they, they need to do for nuclear power.
5: They always said that, and they have always maintained that our nuclear project is for peaceful purposes, and Mike Pompeo, as the head of CIA, when he was uh, in front of the um, the Senate to be confirmed... He was the head of the State Department. Uh, and no, before that he was the head of CIA, and when he presented okay. himself to the state, to the Senate for being confirmed for the State Department, for the Secretary of State, in his um, testimony, he confirmed that the Iranian nuclear project is peaceful. They had never planned to create a bomb, and they are not going about it. It's on min um, an hour and a half in his testimony. It's between one thirty 1.30 and one thirty-five minutes in his testimony. And on January thirtieth of two thousand eighteen, when the head of American forces were in front of the Senate, they confirmed the same thing. Now, I don't know why we are, um, why we are having such a historical amnesia, and let's say we don't accept what the Iranian government says, but uh, presumably the Americans, when they go in front of the uh, Congress, they are telling the truth, and here's the truth.
2: You finish your thought, Niloufar. Thank you. Okay. all right, thank you very much. Yeah, you know, if if Iran's uh, intention is entirely peaceful, and any country right now that's aggressively trying to develop nuclear power very often is also trying to do that for nuclear weapons. But if their plans are peaceful, I mean, we need to be working with Iran. That's the bottom line. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Ken in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Ken, what's on your mind today?
7: I've got a question for you. Perhaps you can check my framing. We often seem to follow what I would call the right-wing framing on uh, socialism versus capitalism as if they're antonyms and they're against each other. Uh, I don't think so. I I think essentially socialism moderates capitalism. Otherwise, we head into corporatism, as Mussolini used to call it. I keep hearing this. And, and on the other
2: hand, capitalism provides a certain vitality to socialism, which is what they're doing right now in Cuba.
7: Exactly. In fact, uh, the Russians, uh, I don't know if you've read this book, I think it's called The Russians. It was by uh, a person who was in Russia, he was a diplomat or something, For I think he was actually worked for a paper or something, uh, for 30 years. And he said they had their own stores. They had capitalism. Uh, but there were no names on them because they didn't want to, the public to know that the right. power, yeah anyway, yeah, essentially they moderate each other now, communism is something totally different,
2: yeah, and communism works in small communities, and communism is how Jesus ran him and his disciples. You know, there was a common purse, Judas carried it, for example. Communism is how kibbutzes used to run, it's how you know communes run, it's how a lot of tribes run around the world. But when you reach a, a size where it's not possible for everybody to know everybody, which seems to be around 150 people, when you exceed that number. Communism starts to break down because then the sociopaths can take advantage of other people, and that's why you need regulation, or you need to move to another system. And and I, I'm with you, Ken. I don't think you're ever going to get rid of capitalism. There's always going to be people who have great ideas but don't have the means to implement them, and people who have the means to implement them and don't have the great ideas. And capitalism is how they get together. On the other hand, without a good dose of socialism. And I think the best example of this, of course, is in the northern European and Scandinavian countries. But without a good dose of socialism moderating capitalism, capitalism becomes just a purely brutal force. And and that's what we saw in the United States throughout much of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. And and you know we've we've figured out how to moderate it. The problem is that capitalism also, unless it's really tightly regulated, and that's mostly through anti-monopoly laws and high levels of taxation, unless it's really tightly moderated, it produces oligarchs. And those oligarchs will try to corrupt government and produce oligarchy, which is where we have been at for the last 10, 15, arguably 20 years in the United States, where government completely ceases to do anything, you know, do the work of the people and only does the work of the oligarchs. And that then makes a country ri- ripe for revolution, um, a positive or a negative revolution, but you know, people just want change. And that, I think, is exactly what you saw in the Trump phenomena. It's what we saw on January sixth, et cetera. So uh, I'm with you. We need a rational mix uh, of the two. Ken, thank you for that. Jim, in uh, Herbster, Wisconsin, hey, Jim, what's up?
6: Uh, hey, good talking with you, Tom. I just turned the TV on a little bit ago and it's just nauseating listening to boobist Americanists that, that we're having to put up with today. But I was- But we teacher.
2: all have those folks in our families and in our neighborhoods, Jim. I mean, we all do. We, we need to le- learn how to talk back got to them in mind. a way that, that doesn't leave blood on the floor.
6: Yeah, well, I was a special ed teacher and a wrestling coach and a lifelong union guy and it's not all about benefits and pay and whatnot. And just if I could put in one plug, if you want to see what it was like before unions, and even while there still was unions, Scott Noble made Plutocracy 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 for the internet, almost two-hour shows with some live footage of demonstrations and how labor was treated by business in this country, and free speech TV plays them over and over and over. I watch them. I never go through a week without seeing them on free speech TV, and they're brutal to watch. So that's life without Mm. a union and with the the corporations running the show. Anyway, what I called about was, you know, I was a wrestling coach. I was in my, like, 18th year. And I was new at a district and when we're coaching I'm working with these special needs students and some youth coaches that had nothing to do with the school district. I don't wanna go into all the any details, but they decide to have a pro war. This is back around ninety when Daddy Bush had had threatened uh, Saddam Hussein to get out of Kuwait by January nineteenth and we had this wrestling meet on January nineteenth and these youth coaches wanted to have this pro this patriotic thing before the wrestling meet and i said no we are not going to have something like that and and all said and done we had a youth meet before which was a great thing but it was destroyed in my opinion and i said no you couldn't do it well the night of the meet there the color there's three colored guards two of the guys are board members and i ended up turning it over to my assistant talking to the kids the wrestlers and telling them i couldn't be a part of this and all said and done i got in the rest of the school year i got called in and they ended up firing me and so if i didn't have a union you know i went out and got another job anyway but you know we filed a lawsuit and we settled out of court and there's, in, in, in other my, words, your
2: union went to bat for you, and unions are of, more about more it, than just money.
6: Eroded by administration.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I totally get it. Jim, thank you. That's a great story. I appreciate your sharing it. Kevin in Miami. Hey, Kevin, what's up?
7: Hey, Tom. A uh, real quick point again about unions. One of the things I was waiting for to talk about was the unions that support police departments. I never hear anybody talking about busting the police unions. OK, I mean, yeah. that is the very reason um, why they never get prosecuted, it's because they were able to negotiate that through the unions. Right. To have mm-hmm. I get the technical term for it. And I just thought that that point needed to be made.
2: Yeah, I agree, Kevin. And it's the one area where I feel that. Uh, unions have acquired more power than they should because they're protecting you know, predators and you know, robbers and rapists and whatnot. There needs to be some more reasonable limits. I'm all in favor of police having the right to be unionized, but cities should not be kowtowing to them the way that they are. And, and frankly, I have a feeling that as these new contracts come up for renewal, you're going to start seeing a lot of changes. Kevin, thank you for that. Mark in Sauk City, Wisconsin. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind?
8: Well, shout out to Jim there because I know where Herbster, Wisconsin is because that's where both my mom and dad came from. Is that uh, so great? Just, <laughs> wild to hear that. But that I was a union steward for here in Wisconsin, you know, that for Wisconsin Professionals Employees Council before Scott Walker gutted the unions and you know to, you know said we can't couldn't negotiate for anything other than salaries and then had to recertify every two years and you know, it was just you know just really just more or less made it impossible to be. A union the way we were and you know Mm -hmm. that i represented people and more than just just that i mean it was it was you know that i didn't defend lazy people i mean sometimes it was just a misunderstanding other times it was actually making the employer you know follow actually follow the contract
2: yeah thanks for the call dana in new york city watching us on manhattan news network in manhattan hey dana what's up
0: tom hi i want to preface my question with every time we hear Say Texas, you know, every time they threaten to secede, and generally people go, "Well, we'll just see what the Olympics." It's kind of laughable. The bigger threat is ending up with say five or six mini Texas or three Dakotas if conservatives ever get really serious about trying to maintain a stranglehold on the Senate.
2: and What do you, the, what do you mean? Are you suggesting that Texas would split itself up in order to have more Republican senators? I don't think well, that so. That
0: would be that would be the more it would be the more tangible threat or the more serious yeah. threat than Texas, you know, every you know every time one of their their clowns threatens, you know, secession, it's like, well, okay, see ya. Um, yeah. But in terms of you know in terms of control of the Senate, it's a much it's a more viable or realistic threat for these, you know, deep red states in the middle of the country to you know, get a, yeah, you here's, know, the, here's you the, know, the problem concern. with
2: that, Dana. There There is a secession movement here in Oregon. I've had the people on the show One back when I used to do yeah, a local show. Yeah. Right. They, I mean, you know, there's there's a California movement. There's a, there's a Washington state. They're, they're, they're all over the country, these little secession movements. They're crackpots yeah. by and large. They're not taken seriously. I don't think you're going to see any state ever secede, number one, and number two. I don't think you're going to see these big states break up. I, you know, the best thing that California could do for the for the country, and frankly for California, because it would change federal political power, would be to break itself into three states. But yeah. it ain't going to happen.
0: Well, to my main question, my main point was about you know, the long-term goal of actually abolishing the Senate. But the first step would be amending the Apportionment Act, which controls the size of Congress, You know, lower the population threshold so that more states have more seats. You know, the game that is played now is every 10 years, states get seats, pal seats stolen by, you know, say, somehow South Dakota happens to outgrow California by a percentage point. They get to steal a seat from California,
2: well, only if California because shrinks. Keep, because
0: rather than expanding the house. Oh, you're saying keep,
2: because the number of the number of seats is fixed. Yeah, okay, I get what you're saying.
0: Yeah, because it's they they keep raising the population threshold. Right. And if they lowered, you know, if they lowered the population threshold per district to say just modestly to back down to five hundred thousand people per district, California right. would have eighty electoral votes total. You know, counting the Senate seats, yep. but and if you get rid of the you know the stealing mechanism. Basically, every state gets automatically gets new seats as their population grows on its own, without other states losing their own, you know, seats themselves. Right. Which would have the benefit; it would actually encourage immigration. Like, you know, you want more. If you want more seats, you got to get more people.
2: Right. You're right.
0: And because you know, under the current, you know, under the current system, you know, seats get stolen and then. Even though it seems impractical, it is a realistic theory that the conservative states could, you know, break up and try to you know maintain a stranglehold on the Senate.
2: Yeah, I get that, and I'm skeptical about that. But but I do think the Apportionment Act should be amended. I, I'm with you on that, Dana. Dana, thank you for the call. John in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, John, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today?
8: Yeah, hi, Tom. I'm retired now, but in my career, I worked at two different uh, broadcast TV stations as an engineer. First job was in Raleigh, North Carolina, which, as you know, is an ironically called right-to-work state, and the pay was terrible. The company was was pretty fair to us with uh, free medical. And eventually, I was part of a small group of people. and We held a covert meeting uh, one night with, I think, somebody who was probably, uh, I know he was from New York. I think he was a Teamster, and uh, which didn't go anywhere. And eventually, not long after that, I was put on the graveyard shift, and then shortly thereafter, I was fired. So I think there probably was... Uh, The names of the people that met were leaked, but uh, be that as it may, I had no other recourse than to go to the State Employment Bureau, and through a series of three meetings, I was able to uh, get a fair decision that I was unjustly fired so I could collect unemployment. And my next job was in Los Angeles at a small independent TV station where the pay was just about the same as in North Carolina. And being as the cost of living was that much higher, it was virtually impossible to get by. Now, the company was decent enough to give me small incremental raises so I could make ends meet. And We had an in-house union, it was not unionized except for an in-house union, which really had no clout. The only thing the dues went for were for uh, our meetings, our annual meetings at a nearby deli to pay for the uh, corned beef and pastrami sandwiches. Uh, eventually, we affiliated with IATSE and we got a whole bunch of back wages and our salaries jumped up uh, um, extremely high, com- uh, comparative, uh, competitively with other stations in Los Angeles now they weren't perfect the reps from the union looked like they were straight out of goodfellas and they did sort of back us on a strike which only lasted one week they didn't even supply us any water it was the middle of summer and after a week they told us well we're not going to get our demands so that was the end of the strike and not I don't know how much longer after that, there were a bunch of layoffs, fortunately, I was able to stay on. So what's the point of your story, John? I'm just saying that uh, I've worked in both uh, union and non-union, I would say that, uh, I wouldn't say that the unions, uh, it's not like the lesser of evils. It's not fair to say that, but they're definitely a uh, much more viable uh, way of going as an employee.
2: I think the formula is really simple. Uh, employers represent organized capital. Workers should have organized workers. I mean, you know, there should be a balance of power here between the organized capital, which is a corporation and and the management, and the and the workers. It, it just should be that simple. John, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. It's the Tom Hartman program. The True People's Media. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a minute. Our book on the Tom Hartman Book Club today is Cuban Women Confront the Future. It's an interview with Vilma Espen. Vilma Espen was the president of the Federation of Cuban Women since its founding in 1960 and was the chair of the Commission for Social Prevention and president of the Infancy Institute and the International Federation of Democratic Women. And it's a long-form interview, actually, the book. So the first question, what does socialism mean in the lives of a Cuban family, and in particular, Cuban woman, Velma Aspen? For the Cuban family, especially the woman, socialism has meant an enormous improvement to the quality of life and personal development. We should remember that until January 1st, 1959, in our country, hunger, poverty, exploitation, repression, and dependence reigned. The revolution opened up new horizons in the economic, political, and social fields, and amongst its key principles is the defense of equal rights for all human beings. The constant struggle to make ends meet disappeared, and with it, the antagonism between people competing for the crumbs that could help them escape the tragic destiny that awaited the majority. Thus, the family, the basic cell of society, could develop in a rounded way our revolution assured all cubans the chance to exercise each one of their inalienable rights each citizen is assured that food prices are reasonable and that education and medical services are free the state makes a systemic effort to improve living standards to the extent that it is permitted by the tense battle for development that we wage under blockade and constant imperialist threats child care facilities have been created provide care for the children of tens of thousands of working women from the age of three months to six years. Services to lighten domestic work have been created. Hundreds of thousands of students have also received free lunch at day school and all their meals at boarding school. Hundreds of thousands of workers also receive their meals at a moderate price in their workplace. More industrial laundries and dry cleaners have been established and more domestic labor-saving devices are available with preference in acquisition and cheaper prices for workers. Huge resources are dedicated to housing construction in urban and rural zones. We also try to guarantee recreational facilities and spiritual enjoyment to all the population. Of course, the possibilities are exciting, but also what we have achieved to date, considering our limitations, is already vastly superior to what families experienced in the past. Social Security provides an income for those who cannot work. As far as women are concerned, equal rights have certainly changed their position in the family and in society. A woman's participation in social production, because it implies her financial independence, has altered her dependent position in the marriage and allowed a change in her ideas and the way she looks at life. The laws that govern family relations, such as the Family Code, are based on equality and guarantee the right of members of the family to participate in society, to work, study, and to responsibly educate the children in line with our revolutionary principles. This does not mean that we achieved all that we aspire to. We still have problems of a material nature to resolve, which are directly related to our economic development. There is still the need to eliminate backward ideas that some people hold, men and women, with respect to the role that each person should play within the home, the nature of the socialist family and the relationship between a couple, ideas which work against the full participation of women in the building of a new society." Obviously, the economic security guaranteed by both men and women having access to work, free health care, and education, the obvious satisfaction and confidence in oneself, that equal opportunity and the chance to fully develop to the extent of one's talents, intelligence, and aptitude offered to each person, the constant motivation and emotional stability that comes from feeling useful, recognized, and dignified as a human being. Everything that socialism has brought to us undoubtedly fulfills the deepest desires of a family, particularly the woman, who until just a quarter century ago was exploited, oppressed, and marginalized in the family and in society. Question. What is the primary concern in Cuba, work or the human being? What place do women occupy within this concern? Velma Aspen. In Cuba, a country that is building socialism, the highest aim is human happiness, based on respect for the fundamental human rights of each person. That includes full social equality to education, health care, work, and professional training. With the chance to employ all of one's faculties to take an active role in society and to help develop that society to create the material and spiritual basis for a full harmonious life where the highest qualities of both men and women flourish to reach those aspirations requires work talent dedication and willingness from everybody it requires constant scientific and technological innovation to assure economic and social development thus each member of our society along with the right to work and all the benefits brought by the revolution, has acquired the duty to help create the economic basis necessary for such advantages. The building of a new society and the fulfillment of new aspirations could not possibly be achieved except on the basis of work and the willingness of the whole population. And the people work with enthusiasm because work is the means for creating wealth and goods for all to enjoy. Work that is free from exploitation does require a new dimension, a quality that stimulates and produces satisfaction, to feel that you are useful and are creating your destiny, to project yourselves toward the future through your work, to cultivate the future. In a speech in January 1964, Che Guevara said that when each Cuban viewed work as a a vital expression of their human creativity, technology, technique, and inventions, would proceed apace and all would participate with an uncontainable force in building the new society. The book... Cuban Women Confront the Future by Vilma Espin. Brad in Prattville, Alabama. Hey, Brad, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Over the last couple of
9: weeks, uh, in particular, I've heard you mentioning that we need to be running more progressives in traditionally Republican-held districts. Now, I live in a dish, Alabama District 2, Barry Moore's District now, that usually goes 75% or more for a Republican candidate. And we actually had a progressive run a few years ago. And the only reason she lost is because she was a Democrat. And she even went out and was talking to these people at the VFWs, at the gun ranges, at you know traditional Republican hangouts. And people were even coming up to her saying, we absolutely love you and we agree on most of your topics, but you're a Democrat and I cannot do that. So do we... Should we be running those people now, or is it just more cultural change that we need to take place before you see a a place like my district go blue?
2: Yeah. Well, on economic issues, on things like strengthening Social Security, expanding Medicare and Medicaid, raising the minimum wage, um, workplace protections, the right to unionize, on all those issues, generally speaking, what you find is that Uh, Republican voters will vote for people who propose those issues. That's why Josh Hawley came out and said he's in favor of a $15 minimum wage. He wants to be the next Republican president. It's why Donald Trump, when he was running for president in 2016, said he was going to raise taxes on rich people so high it was going to give him and his buddies a nosebleed. It's why Donald Trump, back when he was running for president in 2016, said he was going to give everybody in America better health care than Obamacare. It's why, back in 2016, uh, Trump said that he was going to bring back all the factories that have been shipped overseas by these trade deals. He didn't do any of those things. He took a swing at, at bringing the factories back, but he did it in such an incompetent fashion that basically we became the laughing stock of the world. But those are the kinds of issues that win elections, and those are the issues that are central to the Democratic Party. The problem is that the Republican Party historically, or at least over the last 40 years, has very successfully used wedge issues, or social sometimes referred to as social issues, As, but, but, you know, the politicians refer to them as wedge issues because they're like the wedge that they can drive between people and their politicians. Wedge issues to drive the the debate. And so you see this right now with Marjorie Trader Greene, who is, you know, going off on trans people. You know, obviously Republicans think that there are not yet enough out trans people in enough families that the average American family has any kind of positive opinion about that. They used to think that about gay people. You know, they used to think that, oh, there's so few gay people, we can trash them all day long. And then gay people started coming out in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And pretty soon the Republican Party had to say, okay, we're all right with gay people. Although they're, you know, it's kind of grudging um and yeah. and uh but you know so they that's you know kind of one of the wedge issues they will always look at you know abortion is another wedge issue where they try to distort the democrats position you know no i don't know of any democrat who says that they're in favor of abortion they're in favor of women being able to make their own choices about what happens with their bodies <laughs> absolutely that's a it's a very different thing but uh, the question is have we reached a point as a consequence of covid and as a consequence of the failure of neoliberalism and the failure of 40 years of Reaganism. Have we reached this political point? Are are we in one of these 40 to 50 year political cycles that uh, several political theorists have posited that basically nations go through where they go right and then left in these 40 to 50 year cycles? Have we reached that point where those economic issues are so much more vital, so much more important, so much in our faces that people are willing to say, you know, that person may support a woman's right to abortion and I'm opposed to that, I'm Catholic or whatever, but on the issues that actually are going to affect me and my life, like my income and whether whether I have access to healthcare care and, and whether my kids can go to college, I'm with that person and so I'm going to vote for them even though I oppose their position on abortion or I oppose their position on, you know, taking assault weapons off the streets and things like that. And I personally, Brad, think we are at that point. And I think that we've been at that point for for some time, I think for almost a decade. And I think the evidence of that is when when you look at the primary voters in the Clinton versus Sanders race, What you see in in particular is that a lot of Republicans were crossing over to vote for Sanders, not because they thought, oh, he'll blow up the Democratic Party, but because they were enthusiastic about his positions. And so I think that it's it's entirely possible. And we saw this in, in this last primary as well. It was Sanders versus Biden. But I really think that if progressives can make a strong case on the economics and can essentially minimize the social issues. When Republicans get all hysterical about them, they can just say, yeah, that's Republicans being hysterical about those things. This is how I feel. But, you know, uh, you know, the, the far more important issue is whether you can feed your family this week. Um, yeah, I think absolutely. it's possible. Yeah, thanks. Brad, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. Dave in Morrisville, Vermont. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today?
1: Hey, Tom, how you doing? I want to roll Good. the clock back to election night 2008. At the time, I was okay. in my early 50s and am the adoptive parent of a child who at that time had just turned 13 about a month earlier. Her background being she had been with us through DCF for about five years, came from a broken home, knew nothing about politics, conservative, liberal, you know, GOP, Democrat. So we were watching the coverage. We said this is a historic night. She should see this. And uh, the cameras going back and forth between... Chicago and Phoenix, and we're just sitting there watching, listening to the pundits. You know, tell why, you know, why Obama won, whatnot. And uh, we weren't saying a word. And all of a sudden, just out of the blue, these words rolled off her tongue. We we're there. They're in Phoenix, kind of panning in the crowd, all the somber faces in the McCain group. And she just blurted out, "There aren't any black people there." And it just struck me. Um, <laughs> so you know, it didn't occur to me until she mentioned it that wow, this is what it looks like to somebody who's just seeing this for the first time. And she doesn't even remember seeing it, saying it. I asked her about it years later. But it's just interesting to see that perspective. And, um, you know, I just want to put this also in the perspective of, you know, people always talk about big government, big government. But here's a concept I've never heard anybody talk about, and I think it's relevant to this situation because this was a child coming through the DCF system um, siblings that are now in the revolving door of the DOC, she's a productive member of society, a new mother, wife, has a great future, because the system worked. So the concept I want to throw out there is right-sized government. Now, everybody's going to go, well, what does that mean? Well, that's a good question. Let's have that conversation. Nobody ever has. I just want yeah. to your thought on that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree, Dave. And, you know, Reagan basically saying that government is your problem, is the cause of your problems rather than the solution to your problems, set up this whole conservative meme of big government. and And it's been one of the more toxic pieces of our politics. And I think that the perspective that you're sharing, Dave, is widely shared now in the United States. And it wasn't even 15 years ago when I when I started doing the show. What 17, 18 years ago, um, there was this huge debate about you know big government and all this. Now I think people are getting it. And after Texas in particular, Dave, thank you. That's a great story, and and good on you for being a foster parent. Is the Tom Hartman program and the place where despair is not an option. Bobby in La Puente, California. Hey, Bobby, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind?
10: Hey, hello, Tom. I got a topic, a question rather, on white supremacists. And uh, I grew up in it. But jump ahead, you know, I got into recovery. and in recovery, you're supposed to trust. So I'm fairly new in the 80s, not new. Anyway, uh, I'm in a meeting and there's a question. The guy next to me, a retired sheriff. And me and law enforcement, you know, a little leery about them. Anyway, so I sit. I'm sitting down. I look over. He opens a book that we study, The biggest swastika I've ever seen. And I got, Whoa. like, antsy, PTS. I don't know. And I couldn't, I couldn't continue. Okay, I don't know if that guy's racist. But, you know, supremacist, because I experienced it. And you want to trust. And I just couldn't, Tom. And, you know, I struggled. That's part of the reason I got into addiction, you know, my upbringing. So that happened. Another question I was going to ask you a while back, another group. Anyway, this this person comes up to me, had my granddaughter, five years old, and he asked me, did your president ever visit your people, meaning Obama? What do you mean, my people? You mean Standing in Rock? That's not my tribe. But to answer your question, if you hadn't been watching Fox, yes, he did visit Standing Rock. They gave him a war bonnet. And not only that, they had the flag from the Custer, you know, the Custer's last stand. They have it. And uh, to answer your question, no. Then he asked me again, the same person. See, I don't know how to handle these guys. You know, and he says, uh, you know why? Again, I didn't like the question, but I had to put it out there. You know why the blacks vote for Obama? No, you answer. Why? So they they can stay lazy. Tom, I'm being honest. You know, I had to come.
2: This is is poison, Bobby.
10: Yes. See, I didn't know how to go about it. So I stay there. But you know what? I try to overlook it and see how I can relate to this guy and maybe turn his thinking. And it kind of did. You know, because I related, he had a daughter that's, you know, suffering, and I had one that's suffering. So we, we touched on those bases instead of me resenting, because I can't resent. That's part of recovery, and uh, mm-hmm. oh, it was hard, Tom. And uh, another thing, I want to thank your son because I heard he's in addiction medicine. God bless him. You know.
2: No, it's my daughter actually, but yeah.
10: Your daughter. God bless your daughter, yeah. and the rest of your yeah. your family. You know, you did a good job. Thank you, Bobby. And, you know, I was struggling you. with that. And I'm okay now, believe me, but it did, it did because part of my life, the name calling, you know, you know, being. You
2: so know, you were the victim not, of white I, supremacy I, I guess, as a Native American. Uh,
10: yes. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, so it, it, in, in the first meeting, what do you think of that person? If you were sitting there and you're new and you look over at big old swats like an ex sheriff they 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 rough me up not yeah i am not sure
2: what i I do bobby um you know i mean you know part of me would want to confront them part of me would want to uh, you know i don't know these these kind of situations are so hard to generalize because there's so much that has to do with who the people are and what the relationships are um but it sounds like you're handling it really well and uh, I honor that, and I thank you, Bobby, for for your call and, and for and for your voice. You you are always a voice of sanity and compassion when you call into this program. I appreciate that, Bobby. Thank you. I got to run, but thank you. Tom Harbin here with you, Mike, in Seattle. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. Tom, um, long time listener, first
0: time caller. I haven't heard from any individual or any news feed as to why they're not bringing up any either second degree or manslaughter charges against Trump, particularly for the guard that was murdered at the Capitol. And what about his family? Aren't they bringing charges against him for wrongful death? Uh, I'm just wondering what can we do about that?
2: Typically what happens with civil cases like that Mike is that they get they come out after the criminal cases are done after the evidence has been accumulated after the charges have been you know either laid out or not you know after the person has been tried or not I think there was more than enough evidence presented in the impeachment hearings to build a civil case for manslaughter for uh, at least many, if not most, of the people who died on, in the Capitol, and for for damages for you know other people who were injured. I mean, there were there were lots and lots of injuries, particularly among the police. So I think that there's a space there to do that, but my guess is it'll probably happen in the next year or two. It wouldn't happen right away, so I I don't think that it's not going to happen, although. You know, one never knows. But my guess is that that's how it's going to play out. Mike, thanks for the call. You've been listening to
9: Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.